Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hey everybody, welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. Thank you so much for listening. My guest today is Nick Jans. Before we get to Nick, I want to give you some announcements. First and foremost, please check out our website at TravelTalesPodcast.com. Go there and see uh, photos of all our guests, see uh, articles written by me and uh, by our guests, and you can see uh, links to all our social media. That is, of course, Instagram, Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram. It is Twitter, Travel Tales Pod on Twitter, and uh, links to Stitcher Radio as well. There's links to our Facebook page and also links to iTunes. And if you listen to us on iTunes, please give us a good rating. That helps people find the show and boost our presence there. And that's always a good thing. So please do that for me, will you? And as always, all this is free. I'm recording this episode from my cabin on the Coral Princess cruise line where I'm here to do uh, stand-up. And uh, it's uh, beautiful. I'm going through Alaska right now. And one of the things Princess Cruise Lines does for their Alaska journeys is bring on uh, local experts that can point out whatever wildlife. uh, They can uh, talk about things we see along the way. We go through Glacier Bay and they bring on park rangers to talk about and narrate what we're seeing through Glacier Bay. And if you've never been up to this part of the country Please do yourself a favor and check it out. It is uh, gorgeous. Some of the most beautiful scenery you'll see pretty much anywhere in the world. So if you get a chance to go to Alaska, do it. And hey, you might even see me uh, do a mediocre set in front of (laughs) a crowd on the cruise ships. But uh, one of the guys they brought on this particular ship is a guy named Nick Jans, who's an author. He's uh, written about 12 books, some uh, nonfiction, some fiction. He's written uh, many, many uh, magazine articles and, and other things. And he's lived in Alaska since the late 70s. And it's a really amazing story about a guy who uh, he just dropped everything and moved to Alaska as a young man in remote Alaska. I mean, way up there in in the bush and lived with the uh, the local people, the Eskimo people. He calls them Eskimos. I guess we can't call them that anymore. I don't know anymore. We talk about that. But uh, when I mentioned it, it's uh, very much just like the into the wild guy, uh, he, it turns out he knew that guy. And uh, knew the writer who wrote the book on that guy and uh, had something to say about that as well. So just uh, the more I talked to him, the more he had just fascinating stories. So I think you'll really enjoy this episode. Uh, please enjoy my conversation with Nick Jan. Nick Jans, welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. You bet. Happy to be here, man. <laughs> you have an interesting niche, I guess, in this business. I guess. Is it niche or niche? I don't even know. I call it niche because it rhymes with my name, sort of. <laughs> right. 
what do you? How do you call yourself? A storyteller? Uh, an, I know you're an author. You've written a couple books. Um, you are on the ship here as the Alaskan expert, I guess, or a storyteller. We have a, na- a naturalist, and then you. How, what's your title, really? Well, they call me a guest entertainer, but I don't like that one either. <laughs> uh, basically, I'm I'm a full time writer and photographer uh, who totally specializes in. Uh, uh, wild Alaska. And I've lived in Alaska for 37 years, uh, 20 years in small Inupak Eskimo villages. I guess in the end, it really doesn't matter what you call me. But the, the, I mean, if someone asked me to describe myself, I'd say that I'm an Alaska writer and photographer. How did you end up in Alaska? You weren't born here, were you? Ah, hell no. Uh, I grew up, (laughs) I grew up overseas. Uh, uh, My dad was a career diplomat. So by the time I'd been I don't know, I was 15, I'd lived nowhere that ever prepared me for living in, in Bush, Alaska. But I always knew I wanted to be in Alaska or possibly northern Canada. I wanted to be around big, wild animals in big, wild spaces, and that was the best place in the world to do that. I knew that from the time I was three years old. What do you think it was about the nature and wide-open spaces that attracted you, even as a kid? Well, mostly it came down to just this unbelievable magnetic pull to animals and i don't know where it comes from i mean why do why do we end up falling in love with who we fall in love with uh there's nothing i can explain about it it was uh you could definitely say it was my calling and uh, if you want to get jack london and corny about it i was called to the wild let's start at the beginning so where were you raised i know you you said your dad was in the uh he was really high up tell him that story because you mentioned that at uh dinner last night and this guy sounds fascinating uh, my dad was a career diplomat uh and he was actually fairly mid-level but in some pretty high key places uh like for instance 120 nautical miles from hanoi on the edge of the vietnam war where cia spooks and special ops guys sat around and drank with my dad and i was a fly on the wall uh, he's also aide to the ambassador in Bangkok. Uh, and um, when I was a real little kid, we strayed across the border from Austria into Hungary, uh, which at the time was a pretty dicey proposition. And we got detained by uh, by border guards with Kalashnikovs who were very excited. Uh, so uh, my dad had this whole other, uh, other life, and uh, most of it I knew about. And um, he worked for five different presidents uh, going back to Eisenhower. So he was in the heart of the the Cold War, and you were you had a kind of a front row seat to all that. So after that has, in you know in eighty nine and the the wall fell and all that stuff, how have you seen the changes in travel, uh, especially around the world, and how has it changed your life not having this Cold War thing? Well, actually, uh, you know, I it was just a fact of life to me, and when. The wall fell. I was already back in the states, and I was, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, I think I was I was either in high school or college. I can't even remember. I mean, Ronald Reagan. What the hell? I guess it was. I guess it was college. Uh, what year was that? Uh, it was uh, eighty nine, ninety. Oh hell, that's why I was in Alaska. I was yeah. in Alaska since nineteen seventy nine, and, and <laughs> okay. basically, I was living out in the bush in these little Eskimo villages. That's why time didn't matter. You know, I left the whole. I left that world behind, and I left it behind. Uh, not out of rejecting it, but just being called to this other one. Um, one of the things that I've always seen, and I saw it from the time I was a little kid, is that the big wild natural world, in a way that it looked 
500 or 1,000 years ago uh, is vanishing, and I wanted to see it for myself. I wanted to see the passing of the buffalo, you know, and the place to do it was northwest Arctic Alaska. And I, I headed straight to the wildest place in Alaska that I could find uh, very, very purposefully and just wanted to carve out a life there and see how it went. And I was, I was inventing things one step at a time. I mean, I, I drove my grandfather's 66 Plymouth uh, from Maine and put it up on blocks in Esther, Alaska, and took the canoe off the roof, put it on a float plane, and flew out to the headwaters of the Kobuk River. I never saw my car again. I mean, I was going one way. Wow. So what year was this? 1979. Okay. So was, you were... I was 24 years old, you know, and... Um, uh, it, I've been telling people I was going to Alaska, you know, on and off pretty much my whole life. And people were pretty much patting me on the head and saying, oh, yeah, sure, that's nice kid. In- including, I remember my, my girlfriend's uh, uh, dad back in high school when I told him I was going to Alaska. He said, yeah, I said I was going to Alaska, too. We got about 20 miles and broke down. And that was that. And I ended up getting married. So you won't do it. And this is this is very into the wild, you know, this, uh, this kind of life. I mean, did you think that... Um was there one thing about, like, quote-unquote, regular society that was the last straw that you said, you know, that's it, I'm out? No, it, it wasn't that. It was just, you know, as, as Jeremiah Johnson says, you know, that, that great movie with Robert Redford, he says, I've been to a town. And I, I grew up in, you know, Bangkok, Thailand, Vienna, Austria, Washington, D.C. I'd been to a town. I wanted, there were no wild animals there. You know, I, I, I really wanted to be in that sort of a place, and I wanted to travel long distances in that place, uh, wherever it was, and, and get to know it. You know, if, if you had told me when I was 13, and now I'm 61, that I would have seen what I've seen and gone where I've gone, I would have, I would have uh, thought it was an absolute dream come true. I couldn't imagine anything more out of life. And right now, frankly, if you told me I was going to get run over by a beer truck in Skagway tomorrow, I'd say, well, A, that makes sense it was a beer truck, but B, I'm all good with things because I've, I've, already, I've already had my chance in life. Well, at 24, what were you doing and where were you living when you made the call to, to go? What were, you, were you in Maine? Yeah. Uh, well, my dad had retired to Maine and was a college professor there, and um, I'd gone to college at Colby College, because actually, uh, you mentioned Ur- Into the Wild. I mean, that guy was clueless and a stumble bum. In my, in my, uh, by the way, I'm, I'm part of that book. I'm, I'm woven in there. In- Are you? Inaccurately, I might say, but let's not get off on a side okay. uh, because I That's a different I, podcast. Yeah. No, I, I complained to John Krakauer, who, who was a, uh, a buddy. He wrote the book, yeah. Yeah. He was a, uh, a buddy of mine. We'd, we'd met uh, covering uh, uh, the Iditarod in Nome, uh, and I complained to him in a drunk letter after he wrote his piece in Outside Magazine that he'd gotten the story wrong and that he wasn't uh, being true to his nonfiction journalistic roots. Uh, basically, he made the story into something that suited him. And so anyway, Chris McCandless wasn't me. I was in Maine. I bought a chainsaw. I got a rifle. I got a canoe. I got a fishing rod. I learned to use all the above. You know, took mechanic lessons from my older brother, who was a, a whiz, because I knew if I was moving out into the bush, I ne- needed not only to have a chainsaw, I'd be able to fix it, uh, and not only have a gun, but be able to shoot it, uh, and so on and so on and so on. And I was honing my chops. 
you know, the same way you practice for anything in life, you know, the same way you train for train for a sport. And I was in athletics, too. So I, I, I took off after that and, and read voraciously on Alaska and on the different rivers and the different valleys and what was in them and all this stuff. And it wasn't by accident at all that I ended up in the upper Kobuk. Chris McCandless, my view of him and from what I know of him, because the story was covered very well in the Alaska press, was, uh, you know, I'm not down on him one bit. Okay, that's the first thing I want to say is he had every right to go do what he wanted to do. But I think he was in way, way, way over his head, was delusional. Okay, I'm not going to say mentally ill, but he certainly was delusional. And into the wild, let me think, he died in a school bus? How into the wild was he? Oh, not so much. Okay? I mean, my first trip in Alaska was 750 miles, and uh, and I'm not saying that as a pissing contest. Okay? 750 unsupported miles, which I, I, I planned myself, did, and pulled off. It's just that Chris had this, had this very uh, spiritual, abstract idea of wilderness. I had this very concrete view of getting down a river, knowing what rapids you should uh, uh, portage around, what, what rapids you could run, uh, whether or not a, a bear you were looking at was actually dangerous to you or of no worry, all that kind of stuff. And of course, I was a Chichaco. That's like a, a newcomer. That's an old gold rush term. And it's usually denigrating, you know, and, and I certainly was. But I was using everything that I'd learned and thinking quickly on my feet and was looking at it as a, as a, a real physical rather than a spiritual quest. Okay. It was something that you had to do and you had to have your shit really wired tight in order to do it. <laughs> so when you were taking this it was 700 and 700 plus mile journey. Yeah. And you said you knew where you wanted to go. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, the I mean, destination. We, yeah, we improvised as we went. I, I my, my college roommate who... Uh, oh, you had, a, you had a roommate with you? Your uh, buddy was with you? Yeah, he beat, we said we were going to meet in Alaska. He beat me here because he, <laughs> he graduated and went straight off up to Barrow and worked uh, worked uh, uh, for the Naval Arctic Research Labs wow, for a year. Wow, that's way up there. That's the top of the world up there. Yeah, boy, I wouldn't <laughs> want to live there myself. Uh, I was about 300 miles south where there are actual trees and mountains. Yeah. See, Barrow's just like the, the comic book Alaska. It's like, you know... Cue in the whistling wind and, <laughs> yeah. and the bleak horizon. It, it's it's got beautiful light. Don't get me wrong, but hell, if you told me that that I was going to move to Alaska, I mean that's one of the things I researched. Hey, I don't want to live in Barrow. I don't want to live in some coastal northern plain. I wanted to live someplace with mountains, clear water, rivers, uh, lots of animals. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, and I knew where I was headed. So anyway, uh, Peter and I, neither one of us had a- any real experience at long distance wilderness travel. I. I had way more than him, and that meant I, I had a number of four or five night camping trips in Maine, where I was never farther than uh, a, a three-hour hike to the nearest logging road. So, how long did this seven uh, hundred plus mile journey take, and what did you bring, and like in terms of provisions and everything else, oh, and food? Hell. It, it took uh, it took all summer. We started as soon as the ice went out, uh, and Walker Lake uh, at the headwaters of the Kobuk River. Um, had an 18-foot Old Town canoe that I had asked for as a graduation uh, present from, from college and received, specifically to go to Alaska with, um, and um, had all the usual stuff, you know, uh, except it was really crappy gear. Didn't have a whole lot of money, so a lot of it was Army surplus stuff. 
Uh, my brother was in the Marines, so I, I catch some of his fatigues and uh, <laughs> had, uh, you know, uh, uh, combat boots and stuff like that. I did not have top quality gear uh, and uh, cheap, cheap plastic ponchos and things like that. It's just what we had, you know. We were just doing it to do it. I mean, I didn't have any money left when I was uh, when I got to Alaska, let alone to buy anything. And uh, we figured we were going to fish and and shoot rabbits and ptarmigan small game and so on and, and who knows maybe whack a caribou as we went and we did all that stuff and still ended up uh uh starting the trip in fairly fairly uh thin and athletic shape and ending it emaciated we 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 just came damn close to i wouldn't say we were starving but we were certainly ill and weak by the time we were done just because we were so freaking hungry and used so many calories because basically we went down the kobuk river about 250 miles then we dragged the canoe with the 350 pounds of gear by the way included a gold dredge i remember now that was peter's idea i, I thought it was a lousy idea a gold dredge a gold dredge yeah it's a a, a, a machine with some gas uh you, you suck up Gravel and you run it through a run it through a little sluice box. Uh, Peter was a, was a geology major and he thought he was going to prospect for gold. I wanted to travel. Mm-hmm. I want to see animals and so on. But anyway, all this stuff, three hundred fifty pounds, we dragged up the Ambler River, eighty miles. We got and we're talking about straight uphill into the mountains, you know, rapids and stuff, and got to a uh, a pass at the top of the Ambler River and carried the whole outfit twenty miles. Okay, it's 350 pounds of stuff, 1,500 feet up a mountain, and then 20 miles over rolling, horrible walking with bad, bad mosquitoes to the Noatak River. And then we went down the Noatak River 300 miles to Kotzebue on the Arctic coast, which is, you know, 400 miles off the road grid. And that was our trip. And at the end of it, I returned to the little uh, Inupak Eskimo village of Ambler, where I'd met a, a Dutch big game guide who offered me a job managing his trading post and acting as a as a an apprentice guide a, a packer right so what was the most desperate time you guys hit on the way there when you said you were uh, you know starving for food sometimes do you remember the one moment you were like man i don't know if we're going to make it out of this there never was a moment like that we were doing okay you know we we were both tough minded and everything uh, i would never say that we the hardest thing for sure was was carrying all that crap over the pass because, okay, we went 20 miles, but in order to move all our gear forward between the two of us, we had to walk a total of eight miles to, to advance all our outfit and the two of us uh, one mile because it's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, wow. right? Four trips, you know, you do the math. To move one mile forward, you actually need to move two miles because you're coming back. So when the smoke clears, it's eight and uh and you know do that times 20 and it was pretty damn brutal and and that that was very physically taxing um and luckily i just finished playing college sports and was 24 years old and uh i didn't know that i it was going to be that hard and i also didn't know that i couldn't do it so i did there's a lot of things I could do at 24 that I can't do now. <laughs> I look back on that. I was like, man, yeah, I could do a lot more back then for sure. Oh, let's not even talk about that crap. <laughs> and you, just just wait about 20 more years, dude. <laughs> you got worse coming. Uh, what did your parents think of this whole journey when you told them what you were going to do? Well, my parents had always been wonderfully supportive about whatever I wanted to do. Um, and uh, they didn't. They thought I was, it was just a lark and I was coming home. 
you know, and, and that was the big question I got is when are you coming home? You know, to go to graduate school, go to law school, do something. I mean, my dad was a PhD political scientist, you know, and it was never a, a question uh, in my family of, are you going to college? It was what what school are you going to go to? And are you going to Harvard or maybe Dartmouth, you know? Uh, so high standards held and they didn't quite get it. And they finally came up to visit me after I'd lived up there for about 10 years. Uh, maybe it was 12. And they got off the little plane. Of course, I picked them up and I was very proud to show them around. And, and uh, my father's just looking around my yard and he says, tell me, why you live in the middle of all this trash. And I looked around and I saw useful oil drums, old snow machine carcasses that had perfectly good parts on them, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't trash, it was wealth. <laughs> and uh, I felt pretty good about the whole thing. And it went on from there. But the real, I think the real turning point was when I took them over to meet uh, my good Eskimo friend, Minnie Gray, who was a, a woman a, a little younger than my mom, maybe about two or three years younger than my mom. And my parents were in their early 60s when they came up um, and uh, took them over to meet Minnie, who'd always been kind to me. And we'd, you know, I'd always helped her and ch chopped her wood and helped her pull nets and so on. And uh, uh, she met my mother and hugged her and said, I'm his Eskimo mom. <laughs> and uh, actually, my 12th, 12th book, The Giant's Hand, which has just come out, uh, is dedicated to Minnie, my, oh. es my Eskimo mom. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So I don't know. Can we... Is I don't know anymore. If, can we say Eskimo? Is that is that acceptable? Or I, I don't know anymore. One, two, three. Eskimo, Eskimo, Eskimo. <laughs> uh, it, it, no, it's not like the N-word, you know, it's yeah, a, yeah. at all, at all. If you go to Canada... Or Greenland, okay, northern Inupiat peoples don't like being called Eskimos. If you asked people in the Upper Kobuk, people of Minnie's generation said, what are you? She said, I am Eskimo. Okay, so I'm calling them what they called themselves. And, and of course, you can also call them Inu Inupak, okay, and that's fine. Uh, but they all, also you can say Inupak Eskimo because there's also Yupik Eskimo, right? And... Inuit does not refer, that's a generic term, to northern Eskimoan peoples. See, all of a sudden you put Eskimoan, Eskimoan on it. People. Then it's okay. It's anthropological. <laughs> right. uh, uh, but, you know, it, there, you have to parse it out. And the fact is, is that they're Inupiat Eskimoan. And that's, that's what was totally politically correct in <laughs> my time there. To, to call them. And, and yeah, there's some people now who says, oh, no, we want to be called just, you know, just their, their native name. And, it, and it's an insistence. And sure, they have the right to do that. But it's sort of like, you know, I don't think it's one of these floating things where once, uh, you know, the N-word was fine and then it became Negro in my dad's time. Okay, my dad wrote his PhD dissertation. He's a civil rights champion on, on the American Negro and civil rights in the Supreme Court. That was the title of his dissertation. Yeah. And now if you say Negro, people get pissed. Oh, right. Right? So this was this isn't like that. This is much more okay as far as I'm concerned. I don't think too many people are going to get upset uh, right. in, in a village if you if you say, I live in an Eskimo village. Well, of course you do. <laughs> right. Did you pick this certain uh, tribe to live with on purpose or did, did you just have the region you wanted to go to and then they were there? Or did you know anything about them before you got there? 
Oh yeah, I knew there were Inuit back there. Yeah, totally. That was part of part of my reading. I was I was pretty methodical, not in some sort of a anal retentive way, but it really was. I mean, I, I always had a good sense of geography, <laughs> you know. And you you look at it, okay, you look at a map and you look at big rivers and say, well, I want to go down a big river, and is this a clear water river or is it a glacial river? Okay, because if it's a clear water river, it's good for fishing. And that was the kind of river. And now that you can look down into it and stuff, you know, otherwise you're looking down into uh, basically a latte, right. <laughs> you know, and it's no fun. Uh, How were you accepted into the community as, a, as an outsider and, a, and as this, uh, the white guy coming in? And um, were they suspicious of you and your, and your motives at first or were you accepted quickly? Well, I wasn't the first white guy they'd seen. No, no, I know, but I mean, there's reason to be suspicious. I mean, if you're a local. Oh, and... uh, suspicious doesn't quite get it. Hostile more gets it because <laughs> I, I was working for a guy that nobody liked. Okay. I was working for a Dutch big game guide uh, who was sort of a pirate. And uh, so I was I was one of one of th- hanging out with one of the least favorite people in town just because they saw him as bringing in rich white guys to shoot moose in their backyards and i don't blame them because i didn't like working for them either i quit like within it took me about a year to figure that i couldn't possibly do it and the only reason i kept working for them is because i i wanted to stay there right and um as far as uh, attitudes some people were immediately immediately friendly and welcoming and some people were immediate immediately immediately uh racist and hostile to the point of death threats okay but it was one of those things that you'll find anywhere in this world if you immerse yourself in another culture. Uh, people are finally people everywhere you go. And if I've learned anything in my life is they're all different, okay? And it doesn't matter what culture or race they're from. We're all individuals. And uh, you can make blanket statements, but some people were really nice and some people really weren't. And some people... Some people like me and some people still don't after 37 years there. But I could get the, I could find the same thing in Brooklyn, right? <laughs> and uh, uh, the one thing that I will say is that when I step off, I step off that little mail plane, uh, that little Cessna on that, uh, on that gravel strip and get out of the plane, everyone takes off their gloves, sticks out their hands and says, welcome home. That's great. How big of a community is it? How many people? Uh, about 250 now. Ambler, uh, Alaska, it was got up to a high of about 325. And this is um, in the upper left-hand corner of the state, about 300 miles from the nearest road. Okay, so it, it's it's out there. And how you get in now? Well, you get in and out in a, a small plane landing on a gravel field, um, or you travel by snow machine, or you travel by skiff on the river. Those are your three options. Wow. Um, I'm trying to think of, uh, of such a change in lifestyle. I mean, when you've been there for a year, you work for this unlikable, uh, guide, then you quit. So what do you do for the next 36 years? <laughs> well, um, I was a bum for about a year and was living in a little plywood shack, uh, about half the size of this cruise ship cabin, which is not palatial. <laughs> and, um, basically was peeing out back in an outhouse, uh, hauling water in buckets from the river and heating with wood that I cut and split myself, you know, and eating caribou meat and rice. And when that got old, I ate rice and caribou meat. It was about what you'd expect. I mean, I was camping out inside a house and uh, just picking up odd jobs here and there. Uh, But there really isn't much. 
But back in those days, one thing there was was oil money that was just starting to flood into all these villages, and Alaska was flush. And I did have a teaching certificate in my back pocket, and I knew if I wanted to stay, I had to have a job. And what that job ended up being was I started teaching. You know, as I'd, I'd done when I was back in college, I, I picked up a teaching certificate, not because I wanted to teach, but because I knew it was a portable profession. And what else is an English major going to do? You know, become a professional Englisher? You know, <laughs> right. what the what the hell do you do with an English degree? So, so I taught Eskimo kids in... Uh, uh, first of all, not that village, not in Ambler, but in uh, a, a not too far away village, uh, no attack, 150 miles. Uh, same same uh, basic people, although they they were the Nepokdomi people of the spruce trees, as opposed to Ambler or the Kuvangmi people of the Upper Kobuk. Everyone is very, it's very uh, a sense of clan and tribe that's very very unique. And you move 20 miles upriver, and the people there are something else. And there, there are several family names, and everybody's related. And uh, so anyway, I, I taught NOATAC for five years. And then when an opening became a pair, uh, came, came open back in Ambler, uh, at the same time, I'd taken a year off to go to grad school to work on writing. So I, I didn't come to Alaska to write. I came to Alaska to live, but I kept on finding myself wanting to explain what I saw to myself. And I also saw that life was way, way too busy to carve out time to write. So if I was going to write, I had to go to graduate school uh, more. And I thought I was going to learn all these great things about writing. But really what I was doing was paying myself to take a year off to sit down and actually do what I, I said I was going to do and get a little bit of feedback. That's what it amounted to. So I did that, and that's how that's how writing started for me, and actually how photography started for me because it's a visual journal. You know, it was a way of capturing things. I didn't have any uh, big aspirations to becoming you know a professional photographer or even a professional writer. It was something I, I was a hobbyist, right? But I thought that maybe I'd get one magazine story published, one one poem published, you know, one one short story published in some uh, literary journal, and that would be good, you know. And here I am, hundreds. I've kind of gone off on a tangent here, but it's it's part of the deal. It's all part of my life, uh, and you know, hundreds and hundreds of of magazine pieces, and I've written twelve books and uh, contributed to. I don't know, maybe two dozen others, you know, different essays, uh, all kinds of things, and uh, become uh, a pretty okay professional photographer. And the reason I say that is with some humility because there's so many full-time pros who are so much better than I am because that's their gig. That's their wheelhouse. That's what they work on. For me, photography is something I do as an adjunct to my writing, and I just don't spend the time they do and don't have the gear. Uh, you know, could I could I do what they're doing? Sure. But Anyway, getting back to uh, that happened in between, and when I came back, there wasn't a job in No Attack, but there was one in Ambler, so I returned to the place where I'd started, and uh, that became home, and eventually I built a, a, a real house there, uh, and I flew, it, flew in all the materials on a C-130 uh, Hercules, which was a Vietnam-era big, uh, uh, think of it as a flying boxcar on steroids. Uh, and built a house there, and it's still the place that feels most like home to me in the world. So you, where did you go to grad school? Did you go away, or did you do it at a uh, I correspondence? Was, I was going to do it at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, and then I realized I wanted out of Alaska, so I went to UW, University of Washington. Oh, okay. And I, and I got accepted there um, with 
a very, very slim portfolio. Uh, but I, I published a, a couple of, well, I published one poem in Rolling Stone uh, magazine, and I thought, well, hey, I'm going to become a poet. Well, they didn't let me in to do that. I had a couple fragments of short stories, and they said, we want you to write fiction. And I made a deal with them that I would write nonfiction instead and do some fiction on the side. And uh, that's what I did. And, um, uh, you know, I know you're supposed to have trouble publishing your stuff. Uh, I came out with a collection of short stories uh, that was fiction and won their prize at the University of Washington. I can't remember, the Hall Prize. And I had an immediate offer to publish that with a a medium-sized, real, honest-to-God publishing house and turn it down because it wasn't as good as I wanted to be. And I didn't want my first thing out there to be me learning how to write. Uh, but shortly thereafter, uh, the nonfiction stuff that I wrote, uh, and with some more work in 1993, um, I published my first my first real book, which was The Last Light Breaking. And, uh, it was fiction? No, it was nonfiction. Oh, it was non-fiction. No, it was nonfiction. That's what I wanted to do. Was to, okay. I wanted to tell the, the – I wanted to write personal essays, which have the intensity of poetry, the shape of fiction, but the undeniable advantage of being true. Okay, and 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 uh, uh, and part of a search for meaning, both outer and inner, you know. So and and to me, it was the perfect vehicle because it's uh, it requires intensity of writing. It, it requires requires to me that the writing and the story that you're telling be the same. Okay, the words aren't a convenience to the story. I wanted to find a way to project emotion and to project visual visual cues so that the reader forgets that he or she is reading but actually is looking over my shoulder and sees where I'm uh, I'm pointing and feels uh, not necessarily what I'm feeling but feels something you know is, is brought along on this emotional ride and uh, uh, I had to unlearn everything that I learned as, as an English major about how to write in order to do this uh, it wasn't complete deconstruction but it was getting back down to something else simple simple words uh, and uh, uh, conversational conversational style of speech but in the written word which is its own little weird gig it's uh, a difficult thing some writers do that and it's the most intensively difficult style of writing there is is to write with simple clarity so that someone gets the feeling that they're listening to a guy telling a story over a beer you know, instead of I'm reading a book, yeah. you know, and so much nature writing, frankly, I mean, God, some of the stuff that passes for being great. <laughs> I mean, like, uh, and, and these are brilliant people, don't get me wrong, but like Terry Tempest Williams and Barry Lopez and Annie Dillard, I read their stuff and I said, well, what are these people doing? All they're doing is like looking at their own navel. They're, they're, you know, they're, 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 they're writing about ideas, not about the thing itself. And they hadn't really done anything. They went and sit in the woods, you know. I mean, I mean, I'm not making fun of Barry Lopez, but he wrote a he wrote a very good book uh, uh, on wolves of called "Of Wolves and Men" without ever knowing really anything firsthand much about wolves. It was all it was all collecting information from people. I don't think he even saw a wild wolf at the point <laughs> where he wrote the book. Right. Okay. And and one of the things I wanted to do when I came to Alaska was getting back to things was be around wild animals in any way I could. And um, one of those deals was to, uh, you know, here I was in an Eskimo village 
with these guys who are hunter-gatherers, right? And they went out and traveled two or 300 miles one way as a matter of course, self-supported uh, by snowmobile pulling a sled with gas and gear and all the extra parts and the tools. And they were resourceful, hard-driving guys who knew where they were going and why at what season. And um, I gradually and, and grudgingly uh, got permission to tag along with them after lots of lots of being made fun of, but then they'd see me out in the middle of no place, uh, suffering uh, intensely in my with my crappy gear, and and with my less than perfect knowledge of how to how to camp and move in the landscape, and they'd stop in and uh, invite me in for coffee in their tent, and uh, and uh, one by one, uh, several guys I became friends with, and one of them was this. Uh, Eskimo guy he seemed ancient to me at the time. He was forty-five. Uh, <laughs> right. uh, That's a hard forty-five. Yeah, though. yeah. Oh, he, he was. Well, he was a he was a hard grizzled forty-five. Yeah. But still, he was he was one of these guys. Just a it, it'd be the equivalent of a forty-five-year-old Colorado cowboy, right? Mm-hmm. Except he's an Eskimo. Just this hard driving, taciturn. The leather skin. And the... Oh yeah, <laughs> like... I mean, his, his his face looked like looked like a, a moose hide jacket. You know, <laughs> yeah. uh, it was all just black and scarred with frostbite and. Uh, and I would travel along in his wake and and go caribou hunting, uh, wolf trapping, uh, whatever. And I got to learn from him directly and and, and see the world as he saw it. As uh, Clarence Wood was his name, and he's he's still alive, but he's uh, he's a very old man now, and he still goes out, but not the way he did. Uh, he's 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 kind of breaking down. That was the life. That was the, that was what I wanted to do was to go see this stuff. And of course, I was hanging around these hunter gatherers who uh, kill the way we go to Safeway and Costco, right? And it's just it's just part of life. And I went along and I did that for a while. And you have to understand, when I first came to Alaska, I, I don't think I killed anything besides fish. And uh, over my time up there, as I saw wolves and bears die, and as sometimes as I pulled the trigger and moose and caribou and so on, I started just this unfolding process of loving things more alive than they were dead. And I found myself pointing a rifle less and less and pointing a camera more and more until finally I really couldn't go out with Clarence because I didn't want to see any more things die or help him do it. That, that was uh, That's where I am now is, is that I'm at a point where I feel very, very, very attuned to the idea that all living things, including us, we're all the same, and all we want is a chance to live. And when I see a caribou, I think of him as a sentient being just as much as myself and someone who has every bit as much of a right uh, to be here on this world. And some people nod their heads immediately and say yes, including every single Inupak back that I know. And... Uh, a lot of white people who think that this is foolish. And I came to it the hard way. I mean, I've killed so many things. My, 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 my soul is so full of rocks from all the things that I've, I've killed. And, uh, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm just on, a, on a, another path, and it's one that, I, I, that unfolded in front of me, and here I am. Did you stop eating the meat as well? I mean, when you stopped hunting it? You know, I still eat caribou meat. I still do. And... Uh, you know, if you, I eat a lot more vegetarian than I used to, and I don't like pulling a trigger 
but I'll help one of my Eskimo friends if, if he's he's going to shoot a caribou anyway, and if and if I help him uh, uh, cut it up and skin it and carry it, and uh, he gives me some of it, that's good, you know. And and I'm still part of village life and I'm still sharing, but without, you know, I know that, I know that that seems hypocritical, but it it's the best I can do right now because. Uh, Eating things that I help gather from the land is one of the things I wanted always to do. What's 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 more humane, to eat factory chicken, or let me think, to eat only only organic broccoli and asparagus that somehow was grown on a farm where all the wildlife was cleared out so you could grow this stuff, right? It's a slippery slope because right. the the uh, not everybody can be a hunter gatherer, but an agrarian life, even at its highest organic form, which my wife certainly espouses to, has its collateral damage on environment. Because basically, wherever you farm, that means wild animals aren't there. You right. know, And a lot of times they've cut the trees down oh, to make room for it. Not a lot of times. They always have. Yeah. <laughs> they always have. They've shaped ground and made it flat. You know, And, and everybody's excluded. That, is, that, that isn't a, a cauliflower. <laughs> right. You know? So you mentioned your wife. Uh, how long have you been married? Um, that's a good question. Let me think. Uh, 19 years. Uh, I got married pretty late in life, in my 40s. Uh, well, I mean, that's what I was going to ask you, because here you are, a young, uh, healthy guy in his 20s, and you moved to a place where the dating scene is not really huge. I mean, not a lot of women uh, to, uh, to uh, date when you where you went. Was that a, a tough thing? I mean, the social aspect to give up? Well... It wasn't exactly like that because there were there were always Inupac women that were interested in you. Uh, but in a village of 300, you know, really it came down to like four or five possibly eligible women. And then and then some some older married women who, when they were drunk, came whacking on your cabin door. And that was always problematic. Um, I actually uh, pretty much always had women popping in and out of my life, including, you know, one, one day's, uh, very attractive, uh, somewhat older Danish woman. She was like in her early thirties, got off a plane and, and I happened to be up at the airstrip looking to pick up a, a, a big bunch of groceries for the store. And she got off the plane and I invited her back for a cup of hot cocoa and she ended up staying the winter, you know, <laughs> and, and so things like that happened, but there were big stretches of, of being lonely and stuff. And the upper Kobuk Inupak women, by the way, some of them are absolutely drop dead gorgeous. They're some of the, as, as as beautiful as as the and exotic looking as, as some of the most exotic Asian women are. You and know. where did you meet your wife? Um, she wrote me a f- piece of fan mail uh, for a magazine story I wrote for Alaska Magazine about uh, Christmas in an Inupak Eskimo village. Hey, this writing thing's starting to pay off here. <laughs> well, actually, actually, that was a weird thing when my first book came out. Before then, I I was just a teacher, right? And, and by the way, there are also female teachers that came through and you'd right, meet yeah. up from other villages, you know. And, and so we're talking about a pool of about a hundred people, and not all of them were not all of them were guys, and, and, and some <laughs> of them were single. And so there was always something going on. Plus, I had long distance relationships that were always were failing. With you know, I met a met a, a beautiful poet at the University of Washington, uh, and and we kind of. We're on again, off again for for a number of years, you know. Uh, but it was always this distance between us. And the lifestyles, you know, oh, not for everyone. Oh hell, no! They, they didn't belong up there, and I didn't belong down there, and that was the the deal. And uh, when I finally met uh, my wife Sherry, uh, she she lived in Juneau, Alaska, which was uh, eleven hundred miles to the south. And by the way, it's where we're cruising 
two here in several days mm-hmm. uh, and where we'll be. And that was, uh, I, I moved down south uh, and, and uh, by the way, Minnie Gray came down all that way to speak at my wedding and, <laughs> wow. and, and give a prayer in Inupac. Um, so your wife was in Juneau? Yeah, she was in Juneau. She's working as a dental hygienist, but she was from Florida. So I moved down here and I built a house and uh, uh, on the edge of town, on the very edge of town. Is the edge like, of Juneau? Yeah, the last okay. the last house before the glacier. Oh, okay. You know, and uh, ended up with a, a black wolf in my front yard three years later, and that was uh, uh, how my New York Times bestselling book, A Wolf Called Romeo, began was with the experience of this wolf and uh, knowing him over six years and telling his story as best I could. So... Uh, getting back to uh, animals, and, and we'll wrap it up. And, and I want to talk more about Alaska. And you said you stopped hunting. Uh, I know hunting and fishing is a huge part of the economy up here. And how has your uh, opinions of it, uh, of the sport and of the industry, changed in the time you've lived up here? Okay, well, sport hunting is fine with me, but it should be called sport killing. And that would keep that would put it – killing stuff for fun – is pretty low down on the uh, on on the developmental food chain, as far as I'm concerned. I mean to say, well, it's part of my tradition. No, you know, most most people hunt for fun and they kill for fun, and I don't think killing's fun at all. And killing's killing, and as the old John Prine song says, Jesus don't like killing no matter what the reasons for, and hunting to eat, I and fishing to eat. I totally understand that. Okay, I totally understand that. And the key thing that separates uh, how it's done is the dialectic. Is, is, it, is it an I-thou relationship or is it an I-it relationship? Those are in the terms of theologian Martin Buber. And if it's I-thou, you're accepting that animal as an equal life. And when you take that life, you're not doing it without thought. You do it with reverence and you do it with sorrow even. And that thing dies so that you can live and it, and it becomes part of your body and part of who you are. I mean, I mean, as I'm sitting here right now, I'm definitely built out of caribou meat and, 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 and salmon and bear meat and beavers and all kinds of things that I've eaten. They're all part of me, you know, and uh, I feel that, you know, I feel that connection. And what I think is wrong with hunting is when it's all about the I-it dialectic, something for me, that's my moose. And I'm going to stick this big head on my wall, but I'm, I'm going to shoot a thousand pound animal and bring home literally none of the meat. You know, I'll, I'll salvage it and give it away just to get rid of it as an inconvenience so I can have the horns and the thrill of having killed this moose. You know, sorry, I don't get that crap. I just don't get it because, uh, well, hell, even even in the height of my uh, the height of my my uh, killing days, when I would say that definitely I folded subsistence into sport, I saw a no crap world record moose. I saw he would have been the world record. I saw him across a creek. I had a gun on my back. He was legal. I could have gotten that moose, and it was late fall, and I knew he was a skinny bull in post rut, and. He was with three other bulls who were very large, and this one was gigantic, gargantuan, and and I knew exactly what I was looking at. But I didn't, I didn't want to kill the world record moose. I wanted him alive, 
you know, I wanted him to stay right there because that meant he was the, the biggest, finest moose there was. So I get to I get to remove it from the planet just so I can talk that I did that. Oh, great. I killed one of the best moose there ever was. Awesome. <laughs> did you at least have your camera? Oh, hell, it wasn't one of those things. He was uh, he was uh, three quarters of a mile away in, oh. in blowing snow, uh, <laughs> you know, but I, I, I saw him. Yeah. You know, the point was. So how has Alaska changed in terms of tourism for people who listen to this and they love to travel and they're thinking of coming up here? How would you uh, say it's changed over the last 30 years or so in terms of uh, tourism? Well, it's just more people. I mean, there's more people living here. and Every every city has grown. Uh, the bush, by the way, is actually constricting. A lot of the villages in the bush are shrinking because it's just ridiculously expensive and because it's sort of frontiering spirit to live out there is sort of fading from our lives as we become more electronic and inward and tied to our little devices. Uh, but meanwhile, uh, as far as tourism goes, there's a, there's a lot of tourism. There's a lot of interest. And the thing is, is that to me, uh, tourism, mass tourism of the sort that's uh, embodied by this cruise ship that we're on, the Coral Princess, is exactly what's going to save wild Alaska. And it sounds ironic, but if people can come up here in, in limited areas on a conveyor belt, you know, and, and do, you know, minimal impact to the environment, but the most important thing is, is they want to pay to see wild Alaska, not paved Alaska. And wilderness doesn't happen in a vacuum, and it doesn't happen without will anymore. Okay, you have to remember that Theodore Roosevelt and Abraham Lincoln and uh, Jimmy Carter, all those presidents had to step in to save big parts of America. A lot of people don't have forgotten that uh, Abraham Lincoln saved Yosemite. Hmm. And then uh, Theodore Roosevelt actually made it a national park, but, but uh, Abraham Lincoln first saved it. Uh, yeah, yeah, they were ready. They were ready to chop down every tree and uh, oh, sure. sequoia and every everything and oh. turn it into furniture. Oh sure, sure, and that's what we've done all over the damn world. And, and what we have saved here in Alaska is just a little tiny, a little tiny bit of it. But it by lower forty eight standards is huge. And at the same time, what in Alaska, when you get to the edge of a par- national park. For most of them, you can't see a boundary. There's no fence, and here, here start the roads and the cars and the neighborhoods. Okay, there's more country. It's just the same. It keeps on going to a to a limitless horizon. And I really think that wild Alaska, on this grand grand scale, where you can still travel a hundred miles without meeting another person in, in in any given direction, in some cases, uh, is a legacy to the world. And for it to remain wild uh, is going to be because people willed it so and alaskans aren't going to save alaska from itself it's people from around the world who see this as this as this monument you know uh this i mean this this is this is truly alaska is truly a monument to the natural world and all that's beautiful and good in it and a world that of course we want our children and our children's children to see you know and that's that's the deal this isn't just about us in this moment this is about the long haul and where we're going on this little rock. Will the, will the uh, nature interests and the tourism interests have the muscle to fight, say, the oil interests? You know, and that's, that would, I mean, if, if there's one thing that can fight them and has the power and the money to do it, I guess that's the one thing up here that can do it. 
right? Oh, yeah. You know, and it's not a question of, of development or no development. It's development with with thought and with environmental consideration and no more than is needed and not being about the, the bottom line all the time, which, of course, business is. You know, that that's sort of a pipe dream. I don't want to sound like Bernie Sanders Jr., <laughs> you know, uh, but we got to get a handle on this. And, and the fact is, is that is that crummy environmental politics aren't good for anybody, including the oil company, the oil companies, you know, and uh, we're on the cusp of being ready for new technologies that are drastically going to decrease our hydrocarbon footprint. Oil isn't the big worry right now in Alaska because there's, there's oil everywhere that's being produced cheaper. You know, Alaska is no longer the number one oil producer in in in, in the in the U.S. It's uh, North Dakota, <laughs> yeah. Thanks to fracking and stuff, and I don't think fracking is a free pass on anything. Um, but frankly, I know this sounds a little bit cynical, but better there than here. Uh, I think there's a lot more to save here. And yeah, you're right. I've been in North Dakota. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so they, they, can, they can do that, you know, uh, uh, and, and just anything that delays uh, development here, you know, anything any time a road doesn't get built. And there have been roads hanging over the upper Kobuk Valley, which is my home, for 30 years. There always has been this threat. There's 10,000 mining claims active mining claims in the in the in the in the Brooks Range right now and, and some of them are huge uh, deposits of copper of lead zinc uh, you know you name it off into the sunset and it isn't the mines themselves that usually are the huge problem it's the infrastructure they bring it's the roads and as soon as you can drive a Winnebago into the upper Kobuk it's all over circle the wagons man that's it and I honestly my my earnest hope right now is not to see that in my life you know and if you told me right now that there wouldn't be a road into the upper Kobuk, i would have been thrilled if you told me that 30 years ago because it all seemed like it was going to happen back then and it still hasn't happened but the axe has not stopped hanging right the axe is still hanging there by a thread and there's all this stuff all staked out and waiting for the proper locuses of supply and demand to meet so that it does and uh, it's sort of like uh, watching that uh, the wolf we came to call Romeo. First time I saw him, I said, wow, there's a wolf, and my God, he's dead. And that's a metaphor for how I feel about Alaska, is wow, there's this place. My God, it's going. You know, I'm going to watch it die. And uh, hopefully I don't. Yeah, hopefully me either. Um, so... To wrap it up, where can people uh, – I guess we can – if you had one thing to say about uh, if you could talk to the leaders of the state and um, the people running it and, and changing its direction or at least in charge, what would you tell them? What, what would your advice be? Well, they wouldn't take my advice. They already know what I think. Uh, I, I've written op-ed pieces uh, on the environment for USA Today. I'm a member of USA Today's Board of Editorial Contributors, and I'm pretty well known as an outspoken uh, uh, champion of, 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 well, I don't know if champion is the right word, advocate for Wild Alaska. I, I was the sponsor of a ballot measure to try and slow down the state's aerial wolf-killing campaign in 2008. Um Basically, we've been hijacked by uh, 
pretty right-wing conservative interests, business-oriented interests, who think that development by itself is an unleavened good. So they're not going to take my advice. So what I, I think my advice is implicit in everything that I said. And uh, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure that I'm right. And they're sure that they're right. And so we're not going to meet here. This is kind of a kind of like uh, some presidential elections I could think of uh, that are upcoming here, uh, except that I could show them why why they're wrong. I mean, because the last thing we need is another another McDonald's in this world, you know, it's a, and another highway and another strip mall. You know, we're we're all on this on this planet together, and it's getting to be a very very crowded little place. And I don't think we're traveling in a good direction. And one of these days, not too far from now, uh, I think uh, uh, this world is going to shrug us off the same way it shrugged off dinosaurs and everything else. And and the Earth will abide. But if we care at all about our own legacy, we better start taking care of what we have here or we ain't going to have it. And this is not, this is not some Greenpeace, you know, uh, fringe kind of a thing. This is based on the science that I, that comes to me as uh, a nature writer, which means I'm a science writer. I, I base things on, uh, interviews with scientists. Uh, some of my best friends are very, very good researchers, uh, uh, whose job it is to figure out, what's going on and why, and to quantify it. And, you know, we just have to, we have to combine that with our own, with our own spiritual sense of where this world is going and come out with a solution. Or it's real simple. We're screwed. (laughs) Okay, by the buzzing here, it looks like we're pulling up to uh, Glacier Bay. So it's looking nice. And uh, so finally, to wrap it up, where can people uh, find your work? And is there a website they can visit? And uh, where can people buy your books? Well, um, my website is nickjans.com, N-I-C-K-J-A-N-S.com, just the way it sounds. And um, you can find my books on Amazon. Uh, you can find them on, in the cruise ship boutique here, as a matter of fact. Um, and my website has all kinds of links. Uh, I'm working on getting more, but especially links to uh, the Black Wolf uh, that we called Romeo including uh, videos of him howling and trotting around and uh, uh, playing with dogs and encountering other wolves and so on. Um, and um, I'm also a contributing editor to Alaska Magazine. You can pick up Alaska Magazine off a newsstand anywhere uh, that they have it, and uh, I've been writing pieces in there since 1988. Wow. Yeah, and <laughs> one a month since 1990. Yikes, yeah, and I got one due right now. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Nick Jans, everybody. Come on.